Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. If these resources have been a blessing to you, we would be honored if you would consider making a donation to our church building fund. To learn more about this unique challenge ahead of us and to partner with us for a gospel legacy in Missoula, please visit achurchbuilding.com. That's achurchbuilding.com. Good morning again, everyone. My name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here at Sovereign Hope. And let's bow our heads once more in prayer. Um, We like to pray here at Sovereign Hope because uh, we are more reliant on God than we ever know. So let's bow once more before we dive in to the word that was just read for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have given to us your word. What an amazing blessing to think of the ways the, the writers of scripture speak of your word. It is food. It is sweet like honey. It is a lamp to our feet. It is a balm for our wounds. And so we pray today that whether we need healing or nourishment or joy, that you would provide that richly through your word. We're so grateful for you and the gifts you've given us. May you be honored in our hearts and minds as we submit to your teaching. We pray this in your name. Amen. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? If you had to answer that question, how would you answer it? In our opening worship set that we just concluded, we never once sang the word, the gospel, but we're not going to fire Johnny because we sang the gospel. Conversely, we could sing all sorts of worship songs that have the word gospel in it and never sing the gospel. In the same way in my preaching, I could stand before you and I could say that you must believe the gospel to be saved. John the Baptist, in the opening pages of Mark, has this simple message. He says, the time has been fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. In Mark chapter 13, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he says, the gospel must be proclaimed to the edge of the world. In the book of Romans, Paul says, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And yet here we have... Direct quotes from scripture affirming the centrality of the gospel, but in those texts, the gospel still has not been shared. And the word gospel simply means good news. And when we think about good news, it's always relative, isn't it? It's always related to what the goodness is and how it connects with who I am. For instance, uh, my daughter on Friday morning, we had a procedure to see if there was anything wrong with her her larynx and uh, her voice box because they thought there might be some obstructions there. And it turns out there's nothing that needs surgery. There's nothing ultimately concerning with it. And it was good news for us. And perhaps you who know my family, it's good news for you as well. But it's not necessarily good news for you. It doesn't really change your life. You appreciate my family and you like my family. And so it's good news to you because it's good news for us. But it wasn't your problem that the the diagnosis was applied to. Think of it this way, that uh, on a broader scale, it's going to be nice weather here, except for Canada's problem of lighting things on fire. Uh, Here this week in Missoula, it's going to be nice summery weather. That's good news not just for me, but for all of you who are going to be in this city. But if you think about those in the Midwest who are wrestling with tornadoes and flooding, this news is irrelevant to them. It means nothing to them, and it's unhelpful. For many of us, we have a relationship with good news like that that's the same way when we think about good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And because we wrestle to define the gospel clearly, there's a tendency in our heart for the good news to actually be detached from our own relationship, to be detached from our own personal problem and the application it has in our life. It is good that there's a God, and that's great news, but is it good news? It is good to know that maybe your eternity can be fixed by Jesus. That's good, but does it actually change things? In fact, it's my prayer that there are many unbelievers in here today, and you might have a loved one, you might have a a family member or friend who believes the gospel, and you're genuinely happy for them. That is good for them to find some overarching meaning in life, you think. It's just not good news for me. It's just news. So in a really practical manner, I want to ask you again, what is the gospel? What is the good news that God has given to us in his word which shapes our life? In the book of Ephesians, Paul is writing a letter to believers just like you and I in a culture just like your and I's, but thousands of years ago. And in this book, Paul is promoting this wonderful vision to this church, this vision of God's plan for all of history. What does God want to do in our world? Well, Paul told us in Ephesians chapter 1, his plan is to unite all things, things in heaven and things on earth, in Christ. That's what the world is moving to. That's the goal of history, is unity in Christ. But interestingly enough, there's a problem that the church in Ephesus had. There's a problem we have today, and that's that Jesus has left the building. What is it that we are being united to? Jesus has risen and ascended to the right hand of God the Father. But that's what Paul is saying, is that now Jesus has left this unifying work for the church. He is continuing his his unification campaign through the church to the glory of God and for the good of everyone else. This is what we saw last week in Ephesians 1, 20 through 23. Paul picks up mid-thought. It's hard to find Paul at the beginning of a sentence in the book of Ephesians. So in the middle of one, we start in verse 20. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his, that's God's right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So God's great campaign is the unity of all things in Christ. And where does that start? It starts in the church. God is uniting the church to himself, which means that if you're someone who is part of God's church, there are two pieces of that that we ought to know. The first is, how are we as an individual united to God? The second is, how are we as the church, which is just the assembly, multiple people, how are we not only united to God, but we're united to one another? This is what Paul opened with in observing last week when he says that I have heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and your love for all of the saints. And so what's going to happen in these next two texts that we're going to look at is that today Paul is going to address how it is that you are reconciled to God. And the next time we meet, which is going to be next week, we have a guest preacher next week. The next time we meet, he's going to say, how is it then that you are reconciled to one another? And the answer for both is the gospel. The gospel is the way we're reconciled to God. The gospel is the way we're reconciled to one another, which means, again, we ought to know what the gospel is if we are going to have hope that our life is going to have purpose and meaning and belonging and all the things that we look for in life. And so Paul wants us to know that gospel today. 
If you've been around the church for a while, you'll notice that there are lots of ways that people describe the gospel. There are some people who define it in a few words. There are some people who define it in a sentence. There are some people who define it in a paragraph. And some people who take entire books to define what the gospel is. And Paul here in Ephesians is going to use one hefty paragraph to really get at the nut of the gospel in the book of Ephesians. But we have here, and maybe you've heard it at Sovereign Hope, we have a sentence we use to help us remember what the gospel is, and that's this. That the gospel is the good news that Jesus did everything required to save sinners and restore us to God. The gospel is the good news that Jesus did everything required to save sinners and restore us to God. And as Paul unpacks this gospel in Ephesians chapter 2, you're going to hear bits and pieces of that definition. You'll see why that definition is something that's a decent summary of what is in the gospel. But the reason why Paul wants these people to know the gospel is not so that they would pass a theology test. It's so that it would actually shape their life, their affection, and their work. And so what Paul is going to do is he's actually going to provide three components of his gospel message in this text that bear us to not only know, but to actually put into practice in how we view God and how we view each other. To help us understand why the gospel isn't just news, but it's actually good news. Good news for you. And so this is what we're going to see in Ephesians 2 today, is we're going to see three aspects of the gospel. First, the gospel is the bad news about us. Then the gospel is the good news about God. And then lastly, we're going to see how the gospel is the life-changing news of conversion. The bad news about us, the good news about God, and the life-changing news about our conversion. Now, as we walk through these three aspects of the test, or of, the, of this text, um, I'm asking you to reserve your judgments on the gospel until the very end. And this is important for us to do. Because take, for instance, salt. Salt is a compound between sodium and chlorine. And both sodium and chlorine on their own are not safe. But when you bring them together, we sprinkle it on our French fries and it actually provides us nutrients. So too is it with these three aspects, where any one of them on their own and in isolation might be anything but good news. But when we bring them together, it is life-bringing. For instance, if all we do is look at the bad news about us, that leads us to only despair and only to like self-flogging ourselves over our sin. If all we do is see the good news that God is loving, well, then we have to wrestle with the question of how does a loving God allow evil things to happen? If all God is is love, then why is our world anything but? And then lastly, if all the gospel is is conversion, if all the gospel is is change, then how is it any different than moralism or behavior modification or just matching up to whatever the good old generation says Christianity should look like? And so let's keep that in mind as we look at these three things and understand how they hold each other together and how at the heart of this, not of any one, but the heart of all of this is the good news that we need to believe to be saved. So this is our first point today. The gospel is the bad news about us. Let's look at Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, which is the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, 
a rational person would read that text and they would say, it's weird to have the gospel, meaning the good news, in the context of this very bad news. How can bad news be good news? But what we fail to realize is this is often true in lots of areas of our life, where bad news can, in fact, be good news when understood rightly. <clears throat> For instance, one member of our congregation has been struggling with health issues that they can't figure out, and it was plaguing them, and they were trying different things, and it wasn't working. But in the past couple weeks, she was diagnosed with lupus. Now, for all of us who don't have any of those symptoms, this seems like only bad news. And yet for her and her family, it was good news. Why? Because it explained what was wrong, and it framed what they could and should expect moving forward. And while we don't share the same symptoms of lupus, don't we share the same world where it's easy to look out and say that the world we share is sick? Have you ever questioned yourself or heard somebody question, why is the world so broken? What's wrong with our world? Well, Paul brings that diagnosis in this text. The problem is sin. The problem is us. Paul talks about that in Romans, that our sin has spilled over and affects even the creation itself. We are broken, and therefore the world is broken. Not only have we transgressed, a word Paul uses here, God's law, meaning we've disobeyed what he's spoken, but that we're also sinful in that we haven't lived up to the standard of perfection, meaning that we are broken in that we've done things we shouldn't have done, and we're broken in that we haven't done things that we should have done. And when you take those transgressions and sins, there are three things, there's three symptoms of this diagnosis that Paul points out in this text. And you'll see them as we go through this. And these three things is that we are under the control of sin, we are under the compulsion of sin, and we are under the condemnation of sin. And there are a few things we love in our Western culture, like the idea of untethered freedom. We want to be free from everything. Think of any cell phone commercial you've ever seen and how it boasts your freedom from contracts or data caps or things like that. We want freedom. But interestingly enough, there's a theme that kind of goes through the whole book of Ephesians, but specifically in our passage today, that it's actually those who feel themselves to be the most free who are the most enslaved. And it's those who are knowingly the most enslaved who are actually the most free. And Paul brings up this controlling force in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, it's important to remember as Paul is writing this letter to the church. He's writing it to Christians. He's writing it to people who might have a tendency to think of themselves as the greatest good gift the world has ever had. But Paul starts with, remember when you were like this. Remember when you were a sinner. And when you were a sinner, you were not just pre-Christian. You were actually under the control of the devil. You may have thought in your experience that you were a free-thinking, autonomous picture of success. But you were a follower. Your life was going according, not to your plan, but according to the power of the air, according to the prince of the spirit of the age, according to the will of the devil. Your life, when you are not in Christ, is following and going according to powers beyond your comprehension. 
Because to be caught up in the lies of Satan that we saw come into the the world in Genesis chapter 3 in the garden is actually not just to believe Satan, but to be under his power. A power which is not used to liberate you, even though that's what every sin promises, isn't it? Every sin promises to provide us something, saying that God can't provide it. That's what happened in the garden. It promises freedom. It promises joy. It promises flourishing. It says, get this, and you'll be like God. But it doesn't actually liberate us, does it? It enslaves us. It leads us to death. It extorts us. Paul speaks of this later on in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, where he says this, In their case, the God of this world, that is the devil, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You see, when we are in our sin, it might be for the most conscious atheist or agnostic, a reasonable self-effort to not believe. But behind our experience is a devil who is actually blinding your eyes, who is keeping you from seeing. The whole force of the devil wages war against unbelievers to keep them blind in their sin. There's always two experiences. There's the experience of the the spiritual powers that are behind it, and there's our experience. And this is true in salvation, and this is true inside of unbelief. And so if we come to this with our experience, we say, the devil is controlling me? That old devil made me do it line? Like there's no, I've never seen like a doll's head spin around. There hasn't been these creepy horror type scenes in my life where I hear voices in my head or things moving in front of me. I feel completely free to do everything I'm doing. I am no one's puppet. I'm the master of my own soul, and I live how I want to live. But that's the very problem that Paul is showing here. It's not only that we're under the control of sin, but it's also that we're under the compulsion of it. Meaning that Satan doesn't need to audibly speak to us or to give us visions or some sort of miraculous encounter to control us. He knows that the primary controlling factor is your own heart. That he just needs to deceive our hearts into wanting what it shouldn't want and not wanting what it ought to want. He wants our hearts to be bound. And that's what he's done. Our hearts are compulsively under the power of sin. You see how Paul spoke of this in verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Do you hear that compulsion? You're doing exactly what you want to do. You are freely doing things that you shouldn't be doing. He's saying that you as a non-believer, me as a non-believer, are beholden to sin. Have you ever thought about this question? Why is it that you sin? The simplest answer is because you want to. You want to sin. Now, that doesn't mean that all of us are the most maniacal, heinous murderers on the face of the planet, but what that does mean is that when we're given a choice to serve and seek God or to sin, we will always choose freely to sin, and we will never choose to seek God. Take, for instance, uh, you're at work, 
You have a break room and you walk in there in the early morning with your cup of coffee and you see on the break table this wonderful box of fully glutenized cake donuts and a plate of broccoli. You're going to sit there, you're going to look around and no one, mom's not here, boss isn't here, Weight Watchers isn't here. You could choose whatever you want to choose. You are free to pick up that broccoli and pair it with your coffee and just enjoy it to the glory of God. But you won't. You'll pick the cake donut. You'll want the cake donut. Now you'll say, you CrossFit people, well, what about discipline? That's the problem, isn't it? Paul is showing the problem of discipline in this text. We are disciplined to choose what is wrong. We lack the desires of our body are not disciplined to choose what is good. And the authority, the life coach who would discipline us is the devil himself. We have a hurdle on two fronts, internally and externally. We are trapped and is not going to lead us to choose broccoli. We are controlled and compelled by sin and the result is that we're condemned in it. Because we cannot choose God, we are unable to, or to repent. We are condemned in our sin. And Paul says, by nature, by the very essence of who you are and what you have done, you are a child of wrath. Now, I don't know what, your, what encounter you have when you read passages about God's wrath, but the first thing we generally do is we bristle at it. But the problem isn't that God has wrath. That's a good thing. Look at our news. When there are shootings in Virginia Beach, no one wants to act like it's okay. We want evil to be punished. The problem is not a God that punishes evil. That is actually a relief. The problem is that we are evil and that we stand under that penalty of God's good and perfect wrath. And not only are we condemned, but it's a comprehensive condemnation. Did you notice the inclusive language that Paul was using in this text? He says, verse 1, And you were dead, among whom we all once lived, like the rest of mankind. You survey all the religions of the world, and you will never find one nearly as inclusive as Christianity. This is where all of us start. From the most holy person you have ever met to the most pagan, hedonistic person you can imagine. This is where we start. This is where all of us begin our life. And did you notice what Paul emphasizes in this text? He doesn't actually emphasize the moral decay of the sinner. He doesn't say, you, watcher of Game of Thrones, you person who works on Sundays, you person who listens to rap music. It wasn't a joke, but. <laughs> what he's emphasizing is not the broken morality. What he's emphasizing is the helplessness. But what's interesting is when we share our testimonies, aren't we prone to just emphasize the broken morality? Where if you weren't a drug addict, or in a biker gang, your testimony is bleh. But what Paul is emphasizing to leverage the greatest miracle is not the layers of filth on the sin, but the helplessness that sin creates inside of us. 
We are dead, and we can do nothing. We are under the control of someone else. Our life is going according to a plan which we did not write. We are beholden and desirous of death, and over us hangs a just and right condemnation of God's wrath that we cannot change. Maybe you've heard the gospel explained like this before, and that's that there's this man who's drowning, and he begins to sink below the water, and as he takes his first breath of salt water, he reaches up his hand, and God is this stunning lifeguard, and like the, the donut thing falls into his hand, and all the man has to do while he's drowning is, is grab onto that thing, and God will pull him to safety. And so the message is, is that God has given you the life preserver of the gospel. Take it and be saved. But there's a problem with this. The Bible is all about talking about our freedom. We have a responsibility. But the problem of Paul's text is that you are not drowning. You've drowned. Dead men don't grab ropes. Dead men need to be resuscitated. Dead men need to be brought to life. The bad news is that we are immeasurably broken and trapped in sin. But the good news of the bad news is we know what it takes. We know what the solution is. The solution is you need to be made alive. And that immediately limits all of the things we turn to in life, doesn't it? For what have we found in the history of the scientific development of of humanity that can bring a dead man to life? We need something else. And that's a good diagnosis. Because it casts our hope on the only thing that could actually do something about it. And this is where Paul turns the entire narrative on its head. The gospel is the bad news about who we are. But now we see the second point, that the gospel is the good news about God. The gospel is the good news about God. And look with me at where Paul goes next in Ephesians 2, verse 4. But... God. But God. This is the basic framework of Paul's gospel presentation. If you want an even shorter gospel presentation than what I shared at the beginning, it's this. You look at the four words Paul is using to bracket this text. In verse 1, you have and you. And in verse 4, you have but God. And you, but God. That is the most basic understanding of the gospel. And you were, but God is. It needs to be filled out. It needs to be explained. But as a whole, you see the situation that we have and the goodness of what God is. And Paul is now going to begin to expand that so that we actually have something understandable in that framework of and you, but God. And this is verses 4 through 6. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so now we've seen our character in full, and Paul now begins to show us the character of God in full. Rich in mercy and great with love. After describing the power which in our unconverted heart we are controlled, he begins to describe the character and power which redeems us. Do you understand the weight behind this statement? The good news 
in this statement. That not only does God exist, but this God is merciful and rich with love towards the dead, controlled, compelled, and convicted sinner. You might find that to be redundant. It's like hearing your mom loves you. Of course she loves me. She's my mom. Of course God loves us. That's what God does. But do you realize how unique this concept is in the scope of the history of religion? No other religion claims to have a God of such great and cosmic power who is also by nature merciful and loving. They have gods who need to be appeased, gods who need to be kept happy, gods who are focused on themselves, who might be capable of love, who might be capable of mercy, but it is not an extension of who they are. The idea that a god would love people is an idea distinct and exclusive to Christian scripture. A cosmically pure, holy, righteous, and self-sufficient God does not need to be merciful in loving in order to be God, in order to be pure, in order to be righteous, in order to even be good. A God does not need to be merciful and loving. In fact, this God, the very God of Scripture, would have been pure, good, holy, righteous if after he created this world in all perfection and related to it in a way that we would never fully know. And after they sinned and rejected him, God would have been good to say, you do you, you wait until the last day, and you'll be punished. It would have been a perfect execution of God's divine justice. Evil would have been repaid, and God would have been good. But here, Paul drops this bomb of insight into the nature and character of God when he says that the God of the Bible is rich in mercy and full of love for you. Sit under the weight of that. That the direction of this God's beauty and majesty and love is for you. The God who needs nothing has chosen to want his church. The God who is self-sufficient desires to be loving to those who are broken. And remember, we weren't the bell of the ball at this moment. Paul says that it was while we were dead in our trespasses that God loved us. Doesn't that show the love of God? That while we were dead, while we were yucky, while we were a corpse, while we were uh, what we see later on in Romans, while our hearts were hostile to God, that he loved us. And there's this tension, and maybe you've done it, I've done it in the past, where we feel that we have to minimize the brokenness of our condition in order to see clearly the God who loves us. Maybe you guys know somebody, maybe you who've wrestled with that, that if we want to understand the love of God, we need to stop talking about the sinfulness that we existed in. But Paul's doing the exact opposite here. It is precisely the weight of our sin which makes God all the more lovely. I realize this in my kids. I love my kids, and I love my kids very easily when they are obedient. You would love my kids when they're obedient. They're the most adorable three little things you've ever seen. 
It's because when they're obedient and when they're cute, it costs you nothing. It's a convenience to love them. But when my children are rebellious or disobedient, it's harder to love them. And there are two reasons. The first is because they're not acting lovely. And the second is, is that it always comes at a cost to me. That being a father, I need to mend what is broken. I need to correct what is out of line. And it disrupts my economy. It disrupts me sitting on the couch and watching football. It is costly. And I pray that my kids know how costly my love is. That I am not just loving them when they are lovable, but I love them in the heat and heart of their sin. You see, it's only when you see how unlovable we were and how costly it was for God to love us at our worst that you will ever fully understand the vast sum of love which is for you in God. Otherwise, love is just an extension of our own petty selves. But we understand the whole weight of what stood behind who we are and who God is. We see that love was not easy or simple, but it was costless or costly calculated and for you, sparing no expense, being lavished in the richness of God's love. Are you someone who feels that your life is too out of whack to be loved by God? Look to what Paul is saying here. He loves the dead. He loves the broken. He is merciful to the outsider. And the truth is, no one approaches God who is not out of whack. The gateway we all walk through is the gateway of a broken humanity to a God who has promised to bring his people to himself through Jesus Christ. The good news of our God is that he, by nature, is merciful and loving to people who, by nature, are objects of wrath. Now, where do we see God's mercy and love? This is a big point. If you've been with us the last two weeks, a big point Paul is emphasizing. We all like the idea of God. We like the idea of God's love. We like the idea of God's glory. But where does God actually point us to encounter that mercy and love? And Paul's answer is in Christ. We see this in this text. There's this cadence. You have been raised in Christ. You have been seated in Christ. And then firstly, he says, you have been made alive with Christ. Paul says, you've been made alive with Christ which means the grace that saves us is also the grace which buries us. The grace that saves us in Christ is the same grace that buries us in Christ. The gospel is not only life in Christ, but it is also death in Christ. The wrath we deserved as sinners, the wrongdoing of our trespasses and our sins, the deadness that we incurred was poured out on Christ on the cross. It wasn't just the symbol of God's love for us. It was the active exertion of God's love for sinners who deserve death. And so when you believe, as we read in Acts, where the, the, the jailers said, what must I do to believe? And they said, believe in Jesus. Believe in the word about Jesus. When you believe that Jesus did on the cross what you needed to be done, everything Jesus did is counted to you. It counts for you. Meaning your death is applied to Christ. So it doesn't have to be applied to you. 
Which means, as we saw last week in the end of Ephesians chapter 1, that all of the life that Jesus got when he was raised from the dead after suffering for the weight of all sin ever committed by his believers, all of that power, all of that beauty, all of that glory is given to you individually. The comprehensive, overwhelming power of God is poured out on you through Jesus Christ. Jesus is not the rope God threw to you. Jesus is the very force of life that God uses to make dead hearts alive. Yes, you believe. Yes, you respond. But God struck your heart to life because he struck his son to death. And we respond when God has already pounded our heart with the gospel of grace. God's mercy and his love are good. They are great. They are unending and satisfying. And they are seen only in the work that Jesus did on the cross. If your understanding of God's love, God's mercy, of God's gospel, does not get to Jesus, if it doesn't get to the cross, that good news will always be distant. Because it's the cross that applies it to our life. It's the cross that takes good news and make it, makes it my good news. Because it's the cross that takes your problem and made it Jesus' problem. It's the cross that makes the gospel practical to every component of our life. It's the cross that takes what is broken and puts it back in place. Instead of being bound by death and ruled by oppressive forces, you see in this text that we are made alive and ruled by a merciful and loving God. So the question we should ask is the same question the Philippian jailer asked. How do I get that? How is that made accessible to me? Well, Paul addresses this in verses 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. If you believe, it is counted to you as a gift. It is freely gifted to you. You see, here's the the practical application of this. If you can earn your salvation, then there's no sense of ever having assurance of faith. If you undead yourself and you manage to live a life worthy of God's affection and worthy of God's salvation, then you can never rest. The idea Hebrews holds out of a Sabbath rest forever will always be apart from you because there might be a time if you earned it that you can unearn it. Where if you merited God's favor, you might unmerit it someday. You might slip, you might fall, you might mess up, and you might prove that it is not accessible to you. But when salvation is applied to us as a free gift of grace, we can find assurance in its fullest. Because it's hard to lose what you never won. You didn't win your salvation. Jesus won it for you. And that Jesus, remember, is seated. He's ascended. He's ruling. He's reigning. The very object upon which your salvation rests has passed the test. He is unchallenged. No one will threaten what is yours in Christ. If your team has ever won the Super Bowl, which I hope to be someday, you'll know this amazing bliss I'm assuming, I've read about it. It occurs for a short time. But then there's the challenge of next year. Will they win? Will they do it again? 
At some point, Tom Brady's going to retire, and even Patriot fans will bemoan this. But we have no such threat to our salvation when our salvation has been won by Jesus Christ. To find the full assurance of faith, you must see that faith as a gift that is given to you by God himself, unshakable, unchallengeable, and unthreatened by death itself. Have you ever considered that? Have you ever realized that the faith you have at this very moment in your life is faith that you have because Christ has won it for you? Is it Jesus and only Jesus who is the contentment of your heart to say, this is what keeps me, this is what holds me, that raised, ruling, risen Savior is my Savior. If you haven't done that, I encourage you to talk to somebody here today. Find somebody with a badge afterwards. That means they know everything, so ask them questions, and if they don't answer, then we'll kick them out. No, because this is the solution. Jesus has done it. It's simple. We want to help you with it. We don't have all the answers to life. Jesus hasn't given us all the answers, but he's given us the one right answer, which shapes everything. But this moment of salvation is not the end of the gospel message. This is our final point, that the gospel is the good news of conversion. Read with me Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 10. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. One of my favorite documentaries is one that ESPN produced a number of years ago called Broke. And all it does is it takes a number of athletes who made huge sums of money in their sport, who within a span of a few short years managed to find themselves broke. Or maybe you followed stories of people who have won the lottery and realized that it didn't actually help them. They lost their riches. They ended up still in poverty at the end of it. It failed to bring them out. But in this text, we see the wonderful promise of the gospel. We see the promise that God's gospel is really capable of changing our lives forever. It is capable of converting us. A word we use as Christians, not just of converting us from, from no future to a future, but actually converting us, changing the very nature of who we are and what we do in a way which is promised in the very same way that Christ was dead and is now alive. There is an immense change that influences every area of our life when this gospel is our gospel. In fact, did you see where this text began and where this text ended? Look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 2, and then verse 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now listen again for repeated words as we look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. From dead people walking in sin to resurrected people walking with God. From people following the prince of the power of the air 
to people doing good works which matter for all eternity because of the goodness of God. Do you see the drastic life change that Paul is talking about here? It's not a mental decision that has impact only on your uh, eternal landing spot, but it actually influences everything about our day. Look back at Ephesians 2, 5 through 7. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus. Not only have we been made alive, Paul says, not only have we been raised, but we've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. This is weird because we're here. It's not a heavenly place. So what is Paul saying when he's talking about that? He is saying that we have conquered with Christ all the things that Christ has conquered. That we now live in our bodies with the rule and reign of Jesus Christ, meaning that as you encounter the trials of the day, you do so with the crest of the king fixed on your chest. That all of the promises of Christ are your promises. They change your hopes and your affections. And so why has Jesus given us this promise? What is the purpose that he has given us such riches that he's not only raised us, but that he has seated us, that we actually have something today? To what end would God give us that grace? Well, we see that. There's a so that, a purpose statement in verse 7. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. If you have been made alive in Christ, if you have been raised with Christ, if you have been seated with Christ, God has done it so that your life might show you and everyone around you the immeasurable riches of kindness that God has given to you in Jesus Christ. In other words, you have been saved so that God might be glorified in this age and in the age to come. We have been saved because God loves us. That's very clear in this text. It is because of his great love for us that he sent Christ to die. But wrapped up in that love, in that conversion, is also the end that our life might be a blazing picture to those around us, not of our power, but of the power of the God who loved us. You see, when you've been loved by God through Jesus Christ, your life is no longer about you. It is about the God who saves you. It's not that you become saved and the life is now your own to do whatever it is you want to do. It's that salvation binds us to a God who for the first time we're actually bound to something that gives us life. Paul talks about this theme in Romans that we were once slaves to sin. We were bound to death, but now we are bound to God. We are slaves to God, which is being bound to that which is only life. He has only provided for us what is good. And that is to say this, and I'm going to unpack here for us that this, salvation is for you. What a wonderful truth. Salvation is for you, but it is not about you. Salvation is for you, but it's not about you. Look at what King David said before Christ even ruled and helped us make sense of this. Look at what David says in Psalm 116, verse 12 through 14. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation. I will call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all of his people. David says, God has given me so much. What am I going to do with my life? I'm going to make much of the cup. 
I'm going to make much of the cup at home in my quiet time. I'm going to make much of the cup in the presence of those who are around me. I'm going to make much of the cup when I'm at work. I'm going to make much of the cup when I'm recreating. I'm going to make much of the cup of that salvation. And this includes why Paul concludes, or this is why Paul concludes the text the way he does. I pulled that Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 earlier, for by grace you have been saved through faith. You see, we do that. We often make it just about how it is that you've been saved. We make it about that moment of salvation. But actually, in the course of this text, that's not how Paul is using it, is it? He's not talking about that moment of salvation. We're not boasting in Christ is important. He's talking about living out that salvation. Our life is no longer lived for our boast. Our life is lived for the boast of Christ. That he might be made much of in every aspect of our life. It is about what Jesus did. Our life isn't about freedom for the sake of freedom. It's about freedom to finally serve God like we were created to do. You remember what we saw last week? Last week, Paul brought to bear the greatness of what God has given towards us. He wants us to know the power of God towards those who believe. Again, an astounding motion of all of God's goodness. And he says he's given you great power. He's given you great affection. He's given you a glorious inheritance. He's given you his ruling and reigning son for us to have to our benefit. And that's why it's so important for you to see what God has given you in the gospel. Because it's only when we realize that the God of the universe is for us in the gospel that we can ever realize that the Christian life is not about us. It's about God. Conversion means the whole of our lives are changed because of what we've experienced in the gospel. And if the gospel means that sin has been dealt with by Christ and freely given to us in faith, it means this, that you have God. We don't need a life lived for our glory when we have the God of glory. That's what I mean. That's what the Bible means when we say salvation is for us, but it is not about us. In God, we have everything we ever wanted. And only when we realize that are we able to give everything to God. Are we able to see with a singular vision the works of our life being lived not for our boast, not for our comfort, not for our wealth, but for the glory of God so that he might be honored and that others might see the kindness that God has given to us in faith. In salvation, conversion shows us that your life is most satisfying when it is satisfied in the glory of God. This changes everything. It changes how we wrestle through the hard parts of this conversion. When it comes to resisting sin or sacrificially giving or sharing the gospel, all of those things require us to practically encounter the tension between our perception of glory and God's perception of glory. Doing any of those things, and many more, you can make a big list, it requires you to see God as worthy of more honor than yourself. And as you do that, you realize that God will never let you down in that. And you realize that the more you do that, the more your life becomes a disruptive witness where people see you and they see someone who's reliant not upon their own posture before men, but upon their own kindness that they have received in Jesus. It's the greatest gateway to evangelism that we have is showing a life satisfied in Christ. Imagine this week, if when we look at the works that we were created to do in Christ Jesus, we saw that everything was created to glorify him in the end. What would change if you viewed your work through this lens? How does the product that you make, 
the people that you serve, or the attitude that you embody, reflect the kindness that God has given you in Jesus? Where in a really finite way can you do something at work and say, this reminds me and shows others of what Jesus has given to me? Where in your relationships this week can your relationships show that they are not about your own comfort or your own pleasure or your own gain, but about reflecting what God has given us in Jesus Christ? In our marriages, as seeing as the main end, not my own gratification, but of costly selfless service of another as Jesus did to us. My challenge to you this week is to look at this gospel, all three of these things in tandem and see the wonderful change that God has given to us. And I want you to think, what is the next step that this conversion might change in your life? What is one thing that might be done anew, might be done according not to who we were, but to who we are in Christ And by the help of the Holy Spirit, we can begin to do that. This is gospel change for all of life. And it's only this good news, the good news that we were dead in sin, but God was rich in love, that can ever bring lasting and meaningful change to every corner of our life, to the praise of God, and to the reflection of his kindness to us in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you bring to bear the wonderful converting power of the gospel in our lives. That you might show us the bad news about ourself by revealing to us the good news about who you are so that our life might not be lived as it was but might be lived according to your beauty and glory. Lord, the book of Ephesians is about crafting a society which is unique because of the uniqueness of their salvation. May this church, may sovereign hope continue to grow into a society preoccupied with the beauty of this gospel. May understanding how we are reconciled to God be the most practical and life-transforming truth of our day. 